This is Calvary Baltimore's Harford County Bible Study with our senior pastor, Josh Plantholt. Here's Pastor Josh. So we're going to be Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start at verse 13. Um, but before we get there, um, uh, Jesus is, uh, we're towards the beginning of Jesus' sermon, possibly one of the greatest sermons, maybe the greatest sermon ever given, Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and Jesus has ascended the mountain. He has sat. The people have sat. The disciples have sat. And he's now in the middle of this sermon. And he opens, of course, with the series of blesseds, which, as we ran through, was very similar to how the Psalms open. Blessed is the righteous man who walks not in the council. So there's immediately a connection there to Jesus and his favorite Old Testament book. We know this because he quotes it more than any other, the Psalms. Uh, and so if you want to figure out what those blesseds means, turn to Psalm 1. You'll have a pretty fun study for yourself. Um, and so he, he talks about these blesseds. And then if you remember how the Beatitudes conclude, um, and let's... Let's, uh, let's start it. Let's get a running start at verse 10 here. <clears throat> Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other, all, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Um, so today we're going to now start the new section. And you know what I love? Well, what are there, nine Beatitudes? Something like that. I love how I know sometimes on Sunday, like how many, I had five or four points on Sunday during the teaching. And that's a lot. That's probably too much. But Jesus opens his with nine starting points. <laughs> you know, so God's not afraid to just shotgun information at people and see what sticks. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, that's true too. <clears throat> yeah, what's what's that? Remember in Acts, they they were having a church service and someone was so moved they went and sold had a sale of land. Then one came back and lied about it, and they dropped dead and buried them. The church service was still going on. After the funeral, another person comes, and they lie. They drop dead, and the church is still having the service. So it must have went on all day, these church services, which don't tempt me. It sounds wonderful. <clears throat> right, 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 right. So... But anyways, why did I go there? Oh, yeah, nine points. Okay, see, you're a troublemaker. You've already gotten me off course here. Uh, so anyways, we're going to start the, the next section here, section two. And we are in salt and light. Um, and one of the things we have to remember is when the Bible was originally written, it wasn't written with verses or chapters or uh, title headings. Uh, and so this salt and light comes immediately uh, after persecution. So that's the context heading into salt and light, persecution. Uh, so verse uh, 13, we were supposed to do a heck of a lot more than that, but boy, oh boy, this is all we got. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Wow. I would pay any amount of money to listen to that sermon, wouldn't you? Oh, that sounds wonderful. Um, <clears throat> so I got four thoughts. First, salt in ancient times was a preserving agent. So if you've heard this 
taught before. You've probably heard this bit. Uh, and Jesus is telling his believers that they are the preserving agents of the world, that us believers keep the earth from spoiling. Uh, and I, I, this is a, a recent memory for me. My wife bought a beef pot roast that I was going to make. Oh, it's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. And I opened it up and it was spoiled. We just got it. I was rather annoyed. Me and Job, I know. But uh, <laughs> but that smell, if you've ever smelt that smell, it's a horrific uh, smell. But Jesus is saying that's the culture apart from Christ. It's rancid. It's bad for you. It's no good. I was um, I watched a video today on the Comanche Indians. You ever do a study on the Native Americans? Because I, I have Native American blood in me, which explains some things. But I, you know, a, a lot of the education system now is oh the poor Native Americans. Look what look what we've done to them. And there's a tr there's a sense there that they we were, treated them very horribly. But we also don't want to pretend that they were sitting there all singing kumbaya when we showed up. The Comanches were a, they were the most predominant tribe. They were a warmongering tribe. Um, uh, and in fact, they would raid from, from, from village and tribe to village to tribe. And they, they very much like the Mongols, all rode on horseback. And they would take kids 8 to 12 and raise them as child soldiers. Any child younger than 8, they killed and uh, anyone over uh, pregnant women, dead, uh, older people, they tortured as long as they had time. That was their sport, you know. So, but but again, this is a culture apart from Christ. Without Christ, there's only chaos. You see the same thing with the Mongols. How crazy they were, and the Vikings. How crazy they were. They sacrificed their children to Thor and Odin and all these sorts of. But. According to the Bible, when his church, when his people are present, we keep a culture from turning rancid, uh, which is why, you know, you think about the early foundations. I was talking to somebody about this last night. The early Americas, we almost immediately got to building universities and institutions. Uh, we set up law and order hospi hospices. That's a Christian invention. Orphanages is a Christian invention. Uh, and what about the sanctity of marriage and the, the role of children? So the church keeps the earth from spoiling, from, from turning rancid. And by way of common sense, then the less Christian a culture becomes, the more it spoils. There's no preserving agent. And then, of course, if we if we turn, we're, we're going to get into this next time, but uh, when we get to light, and salt and light are connected here, and I don't want to tell you yet why, but it's amazing. Uh, but if you notice, when we get to light, it goes from the home to the, to the city, whoever puts a light. So, but, but in a sense, right, if, if we want to apply that to salt as well, if, if we lose our saltiness in our homes... Our homes turn rancid first. You know, we tend to think about this as a purely communal thing, but, you know, our first mission fields our spouse and our kids and our family that drive us nuts, you know. And so the, the more unchrist like we become, the more those all those little dynamics rot. Uh, and so there, there's that aspect here to the salt. Secondly, notice Jesus said, but if salt has lost its taste... How shall its saltiness be restored? What a clear picture on the perseverance of the saints. <laughs> 
There is an old saying, Satan does not care how high you jump as long as you land crookedly. <laughs> and here we see that the salty must remain salty. Though you see some people, they get, they get saved and they are on fire for God. It's like, look out. You're, uh, but then in a week, a month, a year, it's like they're back to the same old things they were doing before the conversion. They're complete. And that's that no matter, he doesn't care how high you jump as long as you land uh, uh, crookedly. And, and this is one of the reasons, again, and, and I have a reason for it, but I, I have any, any ever, ever wondered why I don't do altar calls? Has anyone ever questioned that? Like, oh, well, what is an altar call? So an altar call is... is I give a sermon, let's say it's an evangelistic sermon, I say, if anyone wants to receive the Lord, um, please raise your hand or stand up and come to the front. We'll pray with you. And, and most churches do that. And, and there's a lot of good there because people should profess their faith. There's nothing wrong with that. There's, I think there's even a time and a place for it. But the danger of the altar call is that people, uh, because people believe, you know, once I'm salted, I'm always salted. Once I'm saved, I'm always saved. But that's a slippery slope. You know, think about how many people have had an emotional experience at a church conference or whatever, and then 40 years later, they're not walking with the Lord at all, but they think they have their fire insurance. This was the problem with the Billy Graham Crusades. You know, all these millions of people came. And then they went back and realized it was 10% of the people a year later were walking with the Lord. The 90% weren't. And so that's the scary bit. Uh, is this a genuine conversion that's happening here? In fact, that's one of the reasons why the Great Awakenings of America weren't called revivals by the people that were doing it. Because they would say, how come you don't say all these people are getting saved? Why do you call it an awakening? He says, because we'll see. We'll see if it sticks. We'll see if it's genuine. We don't want to call these things conversions. Um, you know, and again, so you have these people and they get stirred, but then there's no fruit. There's no real change. They don't attend church. They act conceivably no different than the unsaved world. And so by every biblical metric, they're unsaved. Um, and, and biblically, the, the, the truly saved, the true believer endures to the end. You know, Jesus never got done a sermon and said, if you like this message, raise your hand. <laughs> it was... You're going to endure. You, until your last breath, you're going to live this. That was the true sign of conversion, uh, which I think is very appropriate when we think of the seven letters to the seven churches. They all have the same ending. To those who endure, who conquer. It's, it's basically stepping off the battlefield bloody. Have you, ever, have you ever seen Braveheart at the end of one of the big wars? He's just covered in blood and spit and mud. That's what that word means. I finished my race well. I've been poured out like a drink offering. Um, now, before we move on, a little footnote here. Um, is the term once saved, always saved true? Because I'll get that pushback sometimes. And the answer is yes. <laughs> I believe it to be true. However, uh, I don't use the phrase often because I think it does more raises more snakes than you can kill. Uh, for example, if you were to take a journey through the Sahara, and for some really bad reason you came for me to counsel uh, how to make the trek, and I say, listen, all I know is you're in the desert, you got to stay hydrated. And so you say, okay, so you get to the Sahara and you chug a gallon of water and then you throw your canteen down and go for the walk. 
I assure you, halfway through that trip, you are going to drop that and die. Uh, <laughs> well, when you come to Christ for salvation, so many people think it's that, it's that one-time decision. I drank my water. I'm ready for the trip. No, you are not. You are. You will perish on the way. Uh, and, and so, again, when we think about a genuine conversion, yes, there is that... I was one way and now I'm another. That, that is 100% true. But then we continue to walk with Christ. It's this, it's this enduring faithfulness that permeates every area of our life. And then we live with him and we're a part of his body. And if we are truly saved, we then have to continue to walk with the Lord. Again, there's no... Biblical framework for being indwelled with the Spirit of God and remaining unchanged. It doesn't even make sense if you think about it. God Almighty lives in me, and I'm no different. <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. And so, yeah, so the believer strives for holiness. They sh Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those in the kingdom are going to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so, yes, once saved, always saved. But... The verification of salvation, the fruit of your salvation, the evidence of your salvation is in your daily walk with the Lord. Mm -hmm. and that's necessary. Now, thirdly, let's talk about this trampled underfoot. Mm -hmm. Well, let's remember the structure of Matthew here. Matthew has been telling the story of Jesus in a way that parallels the story of the Israelites. And hopefully this is starting to become very, you guys know where I'm going with this, but it's important. Um, Matthew's been telling the story of Jesus in a way that parallels the story of the Israelites. But unlike the failure of the Israelites all through the Old Testament, Jesus is the faithful son that Israel should have been uh, and, and, and is gathering now a new covenant people, a new people of God in himself and the disciples and the church. And so well, I, I want to run through this really briefly again, and I hope this doesn't bore you because you've heard it too much. But in Matthew 1, we have the genealogy, remember? And it's the story of Father Abraham. Father Abraham and many sons, many sons said, Father Abraham, yes, I am, you know. But the story of Jesus starts at Father Abraham. Next in Matthew, now you know I don't do worship. Now Matthew chapter, at the end of Matthew 1, who's Jesus' father's name? Joseph. Joseph's a dreamer. Just like the Joseph from the Old Testament. So we're now moving through, through Genesis. Matthew chapter 2 comes, um, and Israel has become a new Egypt. Under a new Pharaoh, Herod, who has new magicians in the Pharisees. Later in Matthew 2, like Moses, Jesus is saved as a baby from the new Pharaoh, killing the new Hebrew children. Remember, Herod wants to drown the or kill the Hebrew children as Pharaoh wanted to drown the Hebrew children. In Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is a new Moses who crosses through the waters at his baptism like Moses did in the Red Sea. Where does he go? 
into the wilderness. What leads Jesus into the wilderness? The Holy Spirit. What led the Israelites into the wilderness? The Holy Spirit and the pillar of fire. Both lead them into the, into the wilderness. Matthew chapter 4, like the Israelites were tempted in the wilderness, Satan tempts Jesus three times. There are the same temptations the Israelites get in the wilderness. The difference is Jesus passes all three tests. Of course, the final one being the golden calf, a false god. Jesus, Satan says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus goes, no, I'm good. (laughs) Essentially, no, not interested. He passes the test that Israel should have. Jesus is the faithful son Israel should have been. Then in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus comes out of the wilderness. He goes and immediately gathers four crazy knuckleheaded fishermen. And he starts to build his new priesthood. He starts gathering his guys. And then immediately he starts gathering crowds. So he has his priesthood. He has the people. He has a new covenant community of faith. And just like the story of Moses in the Exodus, where does he bring them? To a mountain. And so now we are on a new Mount Sinai, the Mount of Beatitudes. And Jesus is going to give a new law to a new people in a new wilderness. And so Matthew's telling this story in a way that should capture us. Now, as we get to the end of Matthew, because this is going to continue all the way through this book, which is just amazing to think about, right? When we get to the end of Matthew, Jesus is going to announce that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Now, the reason I bring this up is because as we look at Matthew 5, this term trampling underfoot sounds very militaristic, doesn't it? It's because it is. (laughs) Remember, Jesus is forming a new people of God in the church. And why? Because the salt in Jerusalem has lost its saltiness. They are the new Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember, he says, it's going to be better day of judgment in Sodom and Gomorrah than you guys. Matthew's already established that Israel, Jerusalem, is the new Egypt. (laughs) And it must be thrown down. And so the warning here is those who do not follow Jesus, the, the Israelites who do not follow Jesus, are salt that have lost their saltiness. And in 70 AD, God is going to send the Romans to dash the temple and its people to the ground and trot it underfoot. Now, remember that the context of this salt in Matthew 5 is persecution. Uh, and, and I want to read it again, uh, Matthew five eleven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who came before you, who were before you. Now, as Matthew... Can, continues to tell the story of Israel in Jesus's life, I want you to see now as we go to Matthew 23, and you just listen, and and try to see if you hear the connections. Matthew 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You see the double there? It's an emphasis. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Did you see the connection? We see the persecution of the prophets of the kingdom of God. We're seeing the persecution of the prophets in the kingdom of God. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wing, and you are not willing? See, your house is left desolate, uh, left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I can't wait for that. It's going to be awesome. Matthew 24, 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away and his disciples, almost 
completely missing the point of everything Jesus is saying. They came and point to him all the buildings of the temples. Like, wow, God, isn't this amazing, all of this work? They're standing before God and amazed at stones. It's like incredible. But he answers them, you see all these, don't you? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The Jewish people who did not accept Jesus as their Messiah, who killed the prophets, had lost their saltiness and were about to be trampled underfoot. Now, that applies to the first century Jewish people, right? And we can read that. And sometimes when we come to the Bible, we, we have this really bad mistake of f finding the speck <laughs> in, in everyone else's eyes and not catching the log in our own. Uh, this also applies to us. So I want to take this a step further, and I want to run you through the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. If you remember 55 years ago when we went through chapters two and three in Revelation, I proposed that the seven letters to the seven churches symbolically represented the seven phases of Old Testament history. In our first letter in Ephesus, remember the promises, you will eat of the paradise of the tree of God. We're in the Garden of Eden. Then in Smyrna, we go from a prison to the saints will be crowned. It's the life of Joseph, the patriarchs. Then next, the third letter, we're in Pergamum. We see the Balaam, Balak, and Manna. It's clear picture of, of the wilderness. Then we go to the fourth letter, Thyatira. We see Jezebel, Jehu, uh, Elijah reference. Psalm 1 and 2 is referenced. We're in the time of the kings. In Sardis, we see pre-exilic Babylonian themes. In Philadelphia, we see post-exilic, out-of-Babylon themes. Uh, then the final letter, the letter to the church of the Laodicea, and that's like the lackadaisical church, the, the easy breezy church. Uh, and, and what we see is that they were very reminiscent to the Jewish people in the times of Jesus. They were cold to the people, to the needs of the people. They were indifferent. They were those who had lost their saltiness. And fascinatingly, what, what did Jesus say to the church of Laodicea who were acting like the Jewish people in Jesus' day. He says, I know your works are neither hot or cold, but since you're neither, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's exactly what you would do with rancid meat, isn't it? But that's besides the point. The reason God structured the seven letters to the seven churches this way by retelling the story of Israel into church is to warn us that the same sins that destroyed and plagued ancient Israel were the same sins within the church even today. We can point the finger at the Israelites and go, how dumb are they? They missed it. Well, we do it every day. The same sins that, that plague them are in our lives. And so ancient Israel becomes a cautionary tale when it tells it this way. And so here's what we do with all of this in Matthew and Revelation. Yes, Jesus is starting to reveal that many of the Jewish people were going to lose their saltiness and that they were going to be judged. But when we get to the book of Revelation, we see that many within the church all the way back then, it was already happening. I mean, Jesus was gone for 30 years and already they were losing their saltiness as the Jewish people had. And what does God say in Revelation 1? I'm gonna remove your lampstand. You know, the, the, the churches were lampstands. It's, it's the same languaging of bad salt, throw it out, step on it. Bad lampstand, take it, throw it out. 
We, we, they were losing their, their glow of the lampstand and, and throw them out essentially. So again, I believe once you're saved, you're always saved, but I also believe that there's a way that, that many can appear as if they're saved, but they're truly not. You know, I, Have you ever seen someone at the sunset of their life and they walk away from the Lord? You read about it. You know, people, I, I, I just recently know someone who did this. It's like, you've been to church your whole life. You're a year away. <laughs> and you say, I'm done. Because you're sick. God's no longer holding up the end of the bargain to you or whatever it is. And, and so there's a sense. It's like 65 years of going to church only to throw it away at the end. As tragic as that is, it's proof. You, you did not endure to the end. You did not hold to Christ until the end. And, and this is what John wrestled with. I, I love that in First John. He's writing it at around 95 AD, and he has this line. He says, because they went out from us, I guess they weren't of us. And I, I, I always read that verse, and maybe this is me, so I, I wouldn't necessarily read it this way. But, but I, he calls himself a father in that letter. It's a very endearing letter, and he's talking to people who are struggling with bad doctrine, and he's calling them beloved. It's so sweet, and he gives that line, and I can't help but to think he thought about people who definitely were saved, elders, people that he was like, these, they're with us, and maybe they went through some horrible stuff together, but in the end, they abandoned the church, and he goes, they're not of us, I guess, you know? And that's the thing. We can hope we all have the spirit of God, but the proof's in the pudding. <laughs> we have to endure to the end. Uh, and we must persevere. And, and I think as we connect Matthew and Revelation here, if the Jewish people, remember, they thought they were saved because they were circumcised and born of Abraham. And Jesus goes, I can turn these very stones in the sons of Abraham if I want to. Well, the same has to be true for us as God connects these things. You know, just because you've sat at the Lord's table and have been baptized, mm -hmm. that doesn't mean you're saved. It's it's all about the heart and that faithfulness issue there. We 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 have to endure to the end. Um, and now, fourthly or final point, and this one I almost didn't add because I'm sure we're going too long. But I was so excited I had to tell you under the Old Testament law. I mean, who's going to get me in trouble at that? I mean, you could kick us out at some point, but. <laughs> She loves yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Under the Old Testament law, I got obsessed with salt. I love salt. I eat a lot of salt, by the way. It's probably terrible for me, but I do. I sprinkle, I put it in my water sometimes. I love salt so much. Oh, no, I do the flake salt and stir it in. Oh, it's wonderful. Probably terrible. I don't know, but I love salt. But anyways, under the Old Testament law and sacrificial system, Israel was commanded by God to add salt to the sacrifices at the tabernacle and the temple. The grain offering, the meat offering, so many of these offerings had salt in it. The offerings God's people were supposed to make at the temple and the tabernacle were to be salted before they were offered to God and burned. 
Now, one of the reasons God did this is because sacrificing food to God was a way to share a meal with him. Did you know that? And I'm going to pause here. This isn't part of the program, but I don't care. Oh, that's what you do. <laughs> there's, se there's seven feasts in the Old Testament, right? Seven? Seven? And all of them revolve around a meal. It's almost as if everything in the Old Testament is God's way of sharing a mere meal with his people. All the cleanliness. Well, sure. But then, so, so all, you know, and that, that's one of the reasons Deuteronomy says drink beer, wine, and strong drink, meaning beer in my presence. He wanted to share, constantly share a meal with his people, and they had to cleanse and purify themselves for these things. But that's what one of the things that makes the Lord's Supper so precious. Here they are, and it's almost as if they're in the Holy of Holies, having a meal with Yahweh at this moment. He's breaking the showbread for them in the holy place. So there's like this really, it's almost like he grabs the 12 or 11, because one of them had filled with the devil. And he, it's almost as if he brought him in through the tabernacle to share that meal with them. And then God rents the curtain, and then that do this in remembrance of me. It's as if we're in the holy of holies every time we take the Lord's, you sit at the Lord's table. Besides the point, right? So where am I at? So the, all of these things, God wants to share a meal. See, I get passionate about food no matter where it is. God wants to share a meal with us. And, and But think about this. If you're bringing a food offering, a gr drink offering, a grain offering to the Lord, and he wants to share a meal with you, you just prepared a meal for God. Now, if you're going to prepare a meal for somebody and you don't salt it, you don't like them very much. So it's because it can't be very good. You need to salt your food. It brings out the flavors of the food. So one of the reasons you salted your meat, you salted your bread, you salted these things, is because you wanted to make a delicious meal for the Lord. And so you made your best offering that you could. Uh, but, but the point I'm attempting to make here <laughs> is that salting was such a big part of the, uh, of the uh, Old Testament. Testament covenant. Leviticus 2.13 says, you shall season all your grain offerings with salt and you shall not let the salt of the covenant. What a fascinating phrase that is. With your God be missing from your grain offering and with all your, all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Every offering better have salt. Numbers 18.19 says, all the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord, I give to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and your and for your offspring with you. Salt in the Old Testament was a sign of covenantal relationship with God, that you are his people. But at the same time, the salt of the covenant was salt to be burnt. The salt wasn't put under glass and put in a library somewhere. It was thrown on a fire, a crackling fire. The salt of the Old Testament was placed on sacrifices to be burned. And I believe that's why this immediately follows the persecution from the Beatitudes. God's people are to be tasty and salty salt. <laughs> we, we are to be a people of the covenant and a covenantal relationship with God through the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He was our one-time sacrifice. We no longer need to sacrifice anything. Don't throw any salt on any fire anytime soon. Jesus did it all, all in we are, right? But Jesus 
he lived, what does Isaiah say? Like a lamb led to the slaughter. And God's people are to follow that lamb and live like the lamb. And in some ways, we are to live as salted lambs ready for the slaughter. Like a faithful servant who picks up their cross and are ready to die at any moment. To die, we are to lay down our lives as sacrificial lambs for him. Uh, and so here's the point. God's people are going to be persecuted by evil. If you remember the progression of the Beatitudes, it went from... Boy, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who know they're spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those who mourn, they grieve over sin. It goes through this list of the pure in heart and the righteous. And you think, boy, if you did the first seven, everyone's going to love you. No, Satan's going to hate you if you act like Jesus. And so it ends on blessed are those uh, when they persecute you. And then blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and speak all manner of evil against you. False, I'm like, for my name's sake, right? And it goes through all these, these things, but it ends on persecution. And now here we are, Jesus goes, now you're salt. <laughs> when God's people are persecuted for righteousness sake, for being Christ-like, as the salted sacrifices in the Old Testament were placed on the altar and the smoke of the sacrifice would ascend to God as a pleasing aroma, this is how God's people are supposed to live. We're living salted sacrifices for Jesus Christ. We live in a state of, of ready to be offered up for the Lord at any moment. Isn't that fascinating? <laughs> the blessed, those within the kingdom are those who are persecuted, but those in the kingdom, we don't respond with swords and arrows, but rather we salt ourselves <laughs> so that we may be a pleasing aroma to the Lord if our martyrdom is called for. And this is exactly why when we get to the book of Revelation, where are the where where are the martyrs? They're underneath the altar. They're, they're the salted ones. And again, we, we, we're back to again the perseverance of the saints. <laughs> we are we are not only to, to give the Lord our entertainments and our desires, we're to give him our very lives. We're to salt ourselves and be ready for death if the time calls for it. You've been listening to Calvary Baltimore's Harford County Bible Study. If you'd like to get in touch or come visit us at Calvary Baltimore, head to calvarychapelbaltimore.org for service times and directions. If you have a prayer request or you just want to say hi, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at calvary.faithlife at gmail.com. If you've been blessed by today's teaching and would like to donate to the work that God is doing through Calvary Baltimore, go to our website at calvarychapelbaltimore.org and click Donate Now. Pastor Josh and all of us at Calvary Baltimore consider it a blessing to serve you. We hope you'll join us again for the next edition of the Calvary Baltimore Harford County Bible Study.